The proxy war in Ukraine is frequently portrayed by Western governments and corporate media outlets as a battle of morals, using this propaganda saying it's, you know, the democratic West versus the authoritarian East. That, that's ridiculous on so many levels. First of all, Ukraine is not a democracy. Even before Russia invaded in 2022, Ukraine had banned many opposition parties, imprisoned opposition politicians, closed opposition media outlets, banned communist and socialist parties. Ukraine is not a democracy. The reality is that the proxy war in Ukraine is exactly that. It's a proxy war, and it's entirely about geopolitics. It's about economics. And a huge part of this is the politics of pipelines, of natural resources, of gas, of oil. We saw this with the struggle over the Nord Stream pipelines. Russia is one of the world's largest exporters of oil and gas, as well as fertilizers and wheat and, and minerals. And Europe relies very heavily, or at least until this war escalated in February of 2022, Europe had relied heavily on Russian energy. Russia was one of the top energy exporters of oil and gas to Europe. And I have a map here that shows the gas pipelines from Russia to Europe. And one of the most important, actually two of the most important pipelines that could provide Russian gas to Europe are Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Nord Stream 2 was in construction over the past few years and it was completed, but Germany refused to certify Nord Stream 2. And then in February, before Russia invaded, after Russia recognized the independence of the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics in, in the Donbass, Germany suspended the process of accrediting the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. But we, there were still the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that Russia was using to provide energy, gas, to Germany, and then also to other parts of Europe. And on the map, you can see that the options for providing Russian gas to Europe are really just the Nord Stream pipeline connecting Russia to Germany, Nord Stream pipelines, at least Nord Stream 1 is, is until recently, it was working, and Nord Stream 2, it was not yet working. And then you also have the Jamal pipeline that goes from Russia through Belarus into Poland, and then you have pipelines that go through Ukraine, including the Soyuz and the Brotherhood pipelines. Obviously, Ukraine wants that gas to go through its country because Ukraine made billions of dollars through transit fees. And there were also longtime allegations that Ukraine was actually itself siphoning off some of that Russian gas. Now, what happened this September, though, is the Nord Stream pipelines, both of them, one and two, even though two is not functional, they were faced with very strange circumstances and had giant holes in them. And this has led to widespread speculation of sabotage. A lot of people think that, including local authorities in the Baltic Sea, have said that this is likely caused by sabotage. So this is now leading to a blame game. And people are saying, who sabotaged the Nord Stream pipelines? The German media has speculated that it could have been Ukraine itself, because, of course, Ukraine does not want Russia providing energy to Europe. And Ukraine also wants, if it, Russia is going to provide gas to Europe, it wants that gas to go through Ukraine, not through the Jamal pipeline through Belarus and Poland, and not through the Nord Stream pipelines. There's also speculation it could be the U.S. 
the U.S. had been threatening not only Russia, but also Germany over the Nord Stream pipelines for, for many months. In fact, former CIA director turned Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, he said the U.S. would do everything to stop the Nord Stream 2 project. The Trump administration and the Biden administration were threatening to impose sanctions on German institutions and European allies in order to prevent the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from being certified. And of course, who has benefited from the refusal of Germany to certify in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline is, is the U.S. This is a report from the U.S. EIA, the Energy Information Administration. And, and they reported in June, U.S. liquefied natural gas exports to Europe increased during the first four months of 2022. We've seen a skyrocketing increase in U.S. Natural, liquefied natural gas, LNG gas exports to Europe. And you can see a graph here that shows the blue in the graph is the, is the percentage of the U.S. LNG exports that are going to Europe specifically. Europe has very quickly replaced Asia over just a few months to become the top importer of U.S. LNG. And you can see another graph here published by the U.S. EIA and it shows the countries and the increase in the countries that are importing LNG from the U.S. And you see in the past few months with the escalation of the proxy war in Ukraine, a massive increase in purchases by France, Spain, Britain, and the Netherlands. So, of course, who benefits? The U.S. benefits from Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream 1 potentially being sabotaged, and certainly the U.S. benefits from Nord Stream 2 not being accredited by Germany. So with all of that said, what I want to do in the rest of this episode is I'm going to cut to an excerpt of an interview that I did with friends of the show, Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis of the American Exception podcast. This is part of an episode that we did for our, our series, which is jointly produced here at Multipolarista and the American Exception podcast. It's called Empire and the Deep State. It is a history of the U.S. Empire and the U.S. Deep State based on the book American Exception, Empire and the Deep State by the historian Aaron Good. And in this episode, we discussed the history of the creation of the U.S. national security state going back to the first Cold War. And we talked about NSC 68, which was this this U.S. National Security Council uh, strategy document that was published in 1950 that outlined the strategy that the U.S. empire was going to take for the first Cold War to try to weaken and overthrow the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. And keep in mind, this was in 1950 when China, the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union were allies. It was before the Sino-Soviet split and the U.S. was waging this Cold War to try to overthrow both of their governments. And today, of course, Russia does not have a socialist government anymore, although China still does. And China and Russia are strategic allies. They are very important allies. They have what they call a strategic partnership. And the U.S. is waging a new Cold War on not just Russia, but also China. So in this part of the episode, in this excerpt that I'm going to be cutting to here, I am discussing with Aaron and Seamus the geopolitics of the new Cold War that the U.S. is waging on both Russia and China, and the proxy war in Ukraine. We look at different uh, maps 
including a geopolitical analysis of the conflict, including pipelines, energy resources, access to trade routes. We also talk about the documents published by imperial strategists, especially Zbigniew Brzezinski, the U.S. imperial strategist, and his famous book, The Grand Chessboard, in which he, he warned back in 1997, he warned about a potential alliance between China and Russia. And he also warned about a potential alliance between Russia and Germany. So a huge part of this proxy war in Ukraine is about the, the U.S. trying to permanently put a barrier between Russia and Germany to permanently cut them off from each other in order to make Germany and the rest of Europe economically dependent on the United States itself. And we see that the energy crisis and that this has caused the, sanction, the Western sanctions on Russia and Germany's and in general Europe's inability to import cheap Russian energy has caused a huge energy crisis leading to skyrocketing energy bills, which is bankrupting industry in Germany and other parts of Europe. So all of this is part of the geopolitics and the geoeconomics of the U.S. new Cold War on Russia and China. So without further ado, I'm now going to cut to this excerpt of my interview with Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis from the Empire and Deep State series hosted by Multipolarista and the American Exception podcast. We're going through chronologically here, talking about the history of the U.S. national security state, the military industrial complex. I just want to kind of briefly uh, address contemporary politics and how this relates to politics right now, because, of course, we're in a new Cold War, the second Cold War, and the adversaries in this new Cold War are basically the same, especially in this era that we're talking about leading up to the 1950s, right? Uh, the Soviet Union was allied with communist China, with the People's Republic of China at the time. This is before the Sino-Soviet split. And we know that these war planners, after the communists won the Chinese Civil War in 1949, that in the 1950s, these U.S. war planners, when they were planning for a potential nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, we know because of Daniel, Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, that they set up the system so it would automatically launch nuclear missiles, not only in the Soviet Union, but also China. So for these war planners, China and Russia were, China and the Soviet Union at that time were joined at the hip. They were inseparable. And of course, in the 1960s, the late 1960s, that falls apart with the Sino-Soviet split. But anyway, the point is that now we see a situation that is in many ways similar. You know, people talk about how history doesn't repeat itself, but it echoes. And we see a lot of historical echoes right now. We see a clear Chinese-Russian alliance in February, before Russia invaded Ukraine, in the first week of February, Putin met with Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, and they, they released this 6,000-word joint statement, this kind of manifesto. So how what, what kind of lessons do you draw from this era, the Truman era, to understand the U.S. kind of imperial designs today for the new Cold War against both China and Russia? Well, I think that you can look at the actual you know, maps and look at geography and then trace that to what leading thinkers have put forward in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, I'll talk about uh, Halford McKinder, okay? He's a famous geopolitical theorist of the early 1900s. 
uh, for Great Britain. And I have a map here with uh, that, that sort of shows his um, general theory, if you can put it in map form. He said, he talked about Eurasia as the world island, you know, the world island of Asia, Africa, and the and Europe, basically, okay? And he, especially Eurasia is like the world island, but then some formulations would say, look, they're all one landmass because of Africa. So he sees the heartland as this area, most area, mostly, you know, of, of a, the middle part of Eurasia, which is mostly Russia, Tibet, Mongolia, and so on. He called that the heartland. And he said, who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world. Now, this gets put into practice by the British uh, strategists for the British Empire. But of course, they can't really control, take over Russia and control it. So the question is, how do you sort of negate the power, the potential power of all of these, this land and resources and, and all the human beings that live in these areas? Because they could potentially be a kind of unstoppable force if they were ever organized and bent on imperialism. So this is uh, this thinking has been influential in the United States, and it's you see in the map that there's this outer this area in the middle that gets called um, sometimes like the pivot area or the rimlands, and this is Eastern Europe and the the Middle East and uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia can be described this way. So it's really it ends up being this whole swath that borders the communist the, the two big communist powers uh the people's during the cold war the people's republic of china and the soviet union so and this traces back to it's very relevant to understanding today because the u.s again as with nsc 68 is trying to quarantine russia with all of these sanctions and so on trying to stop economic integration between russia and western europe and this has relevance to world war if you look at world war one what the germans were trying to do which again really frightened british policymakers there's a railway the berlin to baghdad railway which i have a, a map here and you can see this map here where they had planned to uh, before world war ii had most of it was completed or sorry before world war one they planned this this railway from berlin all the way down to baghdad as the name suggests and there had been a lot of oil discovered and it was becoming clear to industrialists that oil was the way of the future. And so this, um, this railroad really threatened uh, Anglo, you know, British, the British Empire, because they're able to go across the Black Sea, you know, across the Dardanelles, Bosporus, whatever, uh, into Southwest Asia. And this would have been a way to connect Germany to the Middle Eastern oil. And it would have uh, been a workaround to the British control of the Suez Canal. And so it was horrifying probably is a contributing factor to why World War I was fought. It was the, the British side was terrified of German industrial power and, and it being fueled by Middle Eastern oil. Likewise, they're concerned about German industrial power being fueled by Russian raw materials and Russian oil as well. So it's, it's really something to see how control of Germany uh, has played out as a major issue for American, for U.S. imperialists and going back to the British day days. Now, there's a quote here from George Friedman, who's the founder of Stratfor, a sort of private intelligence entity connected to, you know, spooks in Washington and so on. He spoke no, no, at no, no, the shadow CIA, people call yes, it. Yes, it's been called that. 
And uh, it's, he spoke at the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, and he said, the primordial interest of the United States, over which for centuries we have fought wars, the first, the second, and Cold Wars, uh, First World Wars, he means, um, has been the relationship between Germany and Russia, because united there, they're the only force that could threaten us, and to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so it, this is relevant up to the present day. Um, the pivot to, to Asia you've seen recently is also relevant to control of this world island. Um, you see here, this is from LA Progressive, uh, an article that they were, I think it's from a, it accompanies a William Blum article, maybe one of his last articles. But you see where there are these um, NATO ballistic, ballistic missile systems right here uh, in Europe, for example, where these arrows are. Some of these are, and these are, uh, in the present day, they are supposedly missile defense, but A, those missile defense systems are not really useful except to possibly deter a second strike from Russia. Okay, they were put in Europe supposedly because of Iranian missiles and the threat they represented, but everybody knew at the time that it was really about Russia. Okay, and now Russia sees these things and these, these batteries, these missile batteries can be Nuclear weapons can be put into these batteries, right? They're not, they, it's not like they can't be used to actually launch nukes at Russia. And the U.S. has a long history, Ellsberg puts this in his memoir as well, of putting nuclear weapons in places where they're not supposed to be. They used to park um, ships and so on with nuclear weapons in Japan in violation of treaties and agreements that they'd signed with Japan. This is just, you can't take the U.S.'s word that they're not putting nukes in these places. So Russia, understandably, treats these as potential nuclear threats aimed at Russia, and they maintain a higher level of nuclear alert because of this, which makes it possible that there could be some sort of miscalculation that could kill us all. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of reasons to not engage in this kind of behavior, but the U.S. wants to for imperial, imperialist reasons. Um, like, additionally, you have um, the the pipeline issue, okay? You're talking about integration, economic transactions between um, Russia and Western Europe. Well, the, this major crisis for uh, US policymakers is the Nord Stream pipeline, the second one, especially, I guess they run in both places. I've sort of gotten some of these confused at some points in the past. I thought the Nord Stream was the one that went through Ukraine, that Nord Stream 2 was up here, but they're actually both up there, which makes sense. But they already put a lot of, they already transfer a lot of hydrocarbons through Ukraine pipelines. Also the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is shut down. Nord Stream 2 was supposed to come online right around the time that the Ukraine war starts. And this seems to be the longer term solution for Germans, Germany's uh, energy issues and really the rest of Europe. But, if, but the U.S. has not wanted this to go forward. And this has to be a, a factor in what the U.S. is trying to do now. They're trying to more or less create, recreate the bipolar world that was established within SC-68. And bringing people into NATO means that they will have to spend, these European countries will have to spend a certain amount of their GDP or their national budgets on weapons, which of course the U.S. is going to, to sell them. Uh, and so it's this is, I see this as the U.S. trying to re-engineer these, uh, this, this arrangement because Without doing so, the actual workings of the global economy are going to allow for the continued, uh, you know, improvement of the Chinese economy, the growth of Chinese economic and, and thus military power, and it will make Russia all the more powerful because they can uh, sell 
raw materials to China, to um, Western Europe. And this is a, a, a huge threat to the U.S. It's basically the same threat in, 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 way, in many ways. It's the same threat that NSC 68 was created to deal with. And now these other sanctions regimes and this war in Ukraine is designed to more or less maintain U.S. hegemony. So if people are thinking like, I don't understand why the media would be pushing this Ukraine war if it wasn't really like important or the moral thing to do for the United States. It's because this is really a war for the U.S. empire to stop uh, these historical trends, which were pointed out by people more than 100 years ago, that Eurasia is an enormously uh, powerful source of raw materials and uh, potential industrial and military power, economic power, and that for Western imperialists, you're going to have to try to control this or contain it. The last picture I'll show here is on the Chinese side of it. I believe that this picture is taken from John Pilger's film, uh, The Coming War with China. But you see all these military bases around China as well. If you look at where all of these military bases are around both Russia, China, well, and you can add Iran, Iran to that as well, you see that these there's no there's nothing comparable to the U.S. side. There's no, there's no Chinese bases that surround the United States or Russian bases that surround uh, the United States or Iranian and so on. This is uh, the Monroe Doctrine says we was full stop not allow other countries into the Western Hemisphere. Okay, so the U.S. is able to say this whole hemisphere is its sphere of influence, and you better not make any inroads there. But Russia, you know, is is expected to suffer a CIA coup that installs an anti-Russian regime right at its doorstep. It's uh, ridiculous, but of course, it's never. Uh, conveyed honestly in the U.S. media, and uh, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. It's it's history that we can actually understand. We can see what the U.S. is doing, uh, and it makes it helps us to make sense of all the lies, and otherwise uh, the the obfuscating things that officials say all the time. This is really just imperialism. And it also shows why the war in Afghanistan was so important. Afghanistan being right there in the middle of Central Asia, right there in the so-called World Island. And of course, we also know that uh, Afghanistan has borders with uh, China. It's not a big border, but it has a border with China and a border with Iran. And uh, it, it had a border with the former Soviet Union, but it's also very close to Russia today. Um, I, I just wanted to say, you know, you were talking about the importance of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in this conflict, the proxy war in Ukraine. This was made very clear before Russia invaded. We saw at the Munich Security Conference, which was in early February 2022, a few weeks before Russia invaded, we saw that uh, Baerbock, the German foreign minister, said very clearly that the Germany did not want to certify the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That was before Russia invaded Ukraine. Of course, when Russia invaded, then they said, yeah, this is not going to be certified. Before that, even, we saw that Victoria Newland, the third in command of the U.S. State Department, who orchestrated the coup in Ukraine in 2014, overthrowing Ukraine's democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych. You know, there's this leaked phone recording of, of her deciding who the leaders of the post-coup regime in, in Ukraine would be. She said as well, before Russia invaded, that the U.S. was pressuring Germany to, to not certify Nord Stream 2. Mike Pompeo, when he was, you know, former CIA director who became secretary of state in Trump administration, he said the U.S. would be willing to do everything to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He said that we'll, we'll do everything to stop Nord Stream 2. This is 
These are aggressive actions taken against a country that is ostensibly one of the U.S.'s greatest allies, Germany. It's still technically occupied by the U.S. with 55,000 U.S. troops. These are the kinds of actions the U.S. carries out against its allies. And, you know, just to wrap up here, a name that has come up a lot is Brzezinski. And I just want to briefly just I, I want to look at these specific quotes he had in his book, The Grand Chessboard. I mean, because it, it what he wrote in 1997 in this book, it, it just exactly what he warned about is exactly what happened. This is from. This is from the Grand Chessboard, American Primacy and its Geostrategic Imperatives, 1997 by Brzezinski. And he has this classic quote here where he's talking about potential scenarios that could threaten the U.S. empire. And he talks about the importance of the U.S.-Japanese-Korean triangular security relationship. And he says, the United States may have to determine how to cope with regional coalitions that seek to push America out of Eurasia thereby threatening America's status as a global power. The most dangerous scenario would be a grand coalition of China, Russia, and perhaps Iran, an anti-hegemonic coalition united not by ideology, but by complementary grievances. Of course, that is exactly what has emerged. And he said that's the most dangerous scenario. Well, thanks to you know, US diplomats constantly pushing for these aggressive policies against China and Russia, Thanks to uh, Trump destroying the Iran nuclear deal, that is exactly what's emerged. But but also what's interesting about this passage is he talks about another great threat to U.S. hegemony. One would be a Sino-Japanese axis, which, I mean, that's kind of crazy. I, I can't imagine that happening anytime in, in the near future, given the history of Japanese colonialism in China. But what, what you were talking about earlier, Aaron... The, the other point, you know, as, this, as the Stratfor founder said, the biggest threat to U.S. hegemony is a potential Russian-German alliance. This is also what Brzezinski said. He wrote, also quite remote, but not to be entirely excluded, is the possibility of a grand European realignment involving either a German-Russian collusion or a Franco-Russian entente. One could imagine a European-Russian accommodation to exclude America from the continent. So what he warned about here in chapter two is exactly what the U.S. is, is doing, acting on now to prevent that kind of Eurasian alliance to maintain U.S. hegemony. And in the process, the U.S. is destroying Europe's economy, bankrupting German industry, which is at the heart of the European economy. And we see the, the consequences, you know, gas prices, oil prices skyrocketing, energy bills across Europe are insanely expensive. We see German capitalists warning that their industry may go bankrupt. We see German labor unions protesting and saying that this insane policy of sanctions on Russia, the largest energy provider to Germany, is going to bankrupt their industries. And obviously, clearly, there, there's, there are major class con class uh, there's a major class conflict and irreconcilable differences between German capitalists and German workers, but. If the German industry is completely bankrupted, that hurts both of them. So this is one of those scenarios in which the German capitalists and the German workers are being completely shafted. And the only people who benefit, of course, are U.S. capitalists because they have fewer competitors and a bigger market that they can flood U.S. Pro products into in Europe. 
Right. I mean, all those things that he's that, that Brzezinski points to are pretty much coming true, except for the Sino-Japanese one, which he says, which we would, which from our perspective seems far-fetched. And yet, I don't know that if things continue to look bad for the U.S., then it may then something that's unthinkable like that might actually be more possible because um, the Japan has been tied to the U.S. economy, but as the U.S. and the and the U.S. dollar, but as this system changes, they may, you know, they, there may be some real radical changes. I mean, I, I just think the Japanese people could wake up and look at like what the LDP is and how the U.S. has run this cut that country, uh, you know, and managed it and essentially turned it into a colony, uh, more or less, uh, it, just by dominating the commanding heights of its economy in different ways and being so intertwined with the Japanese elite. So it's, you really see what the U.S. did in World War II, that it, it essentially, you had the anti-communist pact of it, Germany and Japan, you know, the two pillars in the East and West, yeah, Italy too, but whatever. But, and they just, they brought those into the American empire under, under American management and they managed the anti-communist international with these countries as, you know, bookends of Eurasia and put containment in so that the, the Eurasian heartland would not be doing business with China or sorry, with Japan and Germany. And that's been the strategy, uh, but it's, it's showing some cracks now and, it may well be, eventually it may come to pass that all of Brzezinski's nightmare scenarios are what are, are what happened. So we'll just have to see. Uh, I'm hoping that the fear of that prospect does not lead the U S to take actions that will lead to nuclear war. Uh, and this, the Ukraine thing is definitely in that category. It makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, in, given the risks involved for the U S to be doing this. So you think, why would they do it? If you think it's because of the, the morality of state sovereignty and international law, then I, I don't even know really what to say to you. You have, you're, you're beyond my ability to help. To tell you. <laughs> yeah, I it's, it's about empire. You. It's it, the, For Russia, they see it as an existential war for Russia. For the U.S., the U.S. imperialists, they see it as an existential conflict for the U.S. empire. This is quite different, and it, it's a, it could lead to uh, uh, horrors that we've only, you know, sort of contemplated in nightmare form up to this point. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good note to end on. It is really scary. This is they these imperialists really are playing with fire, and it is an extremely dangerous situation. And like you said, it's not to benefit working people in Ukraine who are being completely screwed over by these insane neoliberal policies that Zelensky is imposing, mass privatization, selling off state assets to U.S. corporations, ringing the opening bell in the New York Stock Exchange, announcing $400 billion of giveaways to U.S. corporations, uh, making it illegal to form a union, uh, suspending collective bargaining rights, uh, banning all communist and socialist parties in Ukraine. Like, Ukrainian workers are getting screwed over. I mean, obviously, they're also being conscripted to go fight in this war. Clearly, Russians are dying as well, and U.S. workers are not going to benefit from this. I, I just said that you know European workers are being are being screwed over, their economies are being destroyed, they're they're unable to pay their energy bills. But also, U.S. workers are not benefiting from this. The only people who are benefiting are these U.S. capitalists and the military-industrial complex, and even parts of the U.S. capitalist class aren't going to benefit from it. It's mostly just like the the financialized international capitalist 
a lot of local capitalists also are not going to benefit. So it's it's really dis so destructive. And obviously, if there's a, if there's a nuclear war, I mean, everyone loses. It's just catastrophic. So I, I think that's a it's a good note to end on. It's it's important to to talk about the relevance of that history going back to the 1940s and 50s and the creation of the national security state and how it brought us to this this moment that we're in this very precarious, very dangerous moment. But this was part 13 of the Empire and Deep State series that I, Ben Norton, am co-hosting with my good friends Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis of the American Exception podcast. This is an in-depth exploration of Aaron's book, American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. We will have many more parts coming uh, ahead. This was the end of our analysis of chapter six of the book, which is about the history of the Truman era and the emergence of the U.S. national security state. There's a lot more great history coming soon. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash American Exception. And you can also go to patreon.com slash Multipolarista. This is a joint production and we'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.